everyone. Welcome back to the weekly webinar series, Embracing Change. Today we have Farida joining us today. I'm gonna to be very careful because uh, she's a lawyer by training, second generation family business member, general manager of the Tarawat Family Business Forum and uh, a governance expert. So I will be careful with my words, Farida. Be nice to me. Um, I'll try, which I'll know, try. I, which I know yeah, we always say trying is a recipe for failure. So let's see. <laughs> there you go. As long as we both know that. <laughs> <laughs> so when I called Farida to say, how would you like to contribute? And right away, without blinking, she came up with this topic of loneliness at the top. So Farida, thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. But maybe give us a little background on why this topic is so you know, dear to you. And, and where, you know, how did it brew? How, how did it all begin? So. Sure, thank you so much. And first of all, thank you very much uh, for having me, uh, Faisal. I really, um, I'm a big fan of your series. I think the topics that you address are, are topics that typically uh, we don't really talk a lot about in public, I believe. Um, perhaps behind closed doors is, is more kind of the space. So I, I think it's really nice to, to have a, a forum where we bring those, those questions to the forefront. Um, so my, my journey is, is, as you said, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I practiced law in Switzerland. Uh, and then I, I started this journey on helping to build this uh, organization called the Farawat Family Business Forum. And of course, as uh, with my background as a lawyer, but as, as well as, as, as the, being the general manager of Farawat, a lot of my work revolves around um, supporting family firms in the Middle East and North Africa in, on their journeys towards kind of, you know, including the next generation, working on their governance structures, uh, facing challenges like we, we are living through right now, um, how, to, how to remain innovative. So there's a lot of these multitude of topics. And as an organization, we try to address those um, on a multitude of, of, uh, of spaces and a multitude of spaces. So about eight years ago, I was running a workshop um, for a large family business, a large Middle Eastern family business. Um, and the idea was the, the so let's say the, the premise was the next generation, uh, which was already in their 40s, um, had kind of a scattered understanding of the future. So the idea was that we would do a two to three day workshop with them, bring them together, kind of create a joint vocabulary, a joint understanding and a joint vision, which would then kind of involve the senior generation to create a sort of a dialogue. Um, and, you know, the, the first two days were only with the next generation. And, you know, the image you got from, from, from them about their situation is, you know, we are not being supported, we are not being seen, like the typical stories, right, of, that we see in multi-generational uh, family firms. Which generation, and if you don't mind? Which generation? They were third. They were okay. third generation. Okay. Um, but I mean, it was kind of second or third because the senior person that I'm going to talk to you about is actually the genius in the family. So oh, even though okay. he was second generation, he really, oh, you know, amplified okay. the organization. Okay. So, but from that understanding, you kind of got that sense of, you know, a very hierarchical, very non-transparent organization. And... Um, 
And that was a little bit my impression. So the way we organized ourselves was to really try to convince the senior generation that these next gens now <laughs> at the age of, you know, the young age of 45 needed a chance to actually bring themselves into the system. So they set you up. I can, I can feel it already. <laughs> I mean, luckily, luckily, I had very little to do ultimately with the, with the presentation because what we did is we empowered them to actually present their thoughts to the senior generation. And so this, the senior generation arrived, there were a couple of brothers, and then you have that, the, you know, the patriarch, the person who is in charge, right? And he comes in all his glory. Uh, and knowing a little bit about the business, I know how much this man manages. I mean, this is a serious empire. Okay. And he comes in and he sits down and this generation starts presenting what they have been working on. And he says, and the, the presentations go okay. Uh, they are a bit kind of, they are a bit bitter in their tone, but you know, it, it generally goes okay. And the reaction of this gentleman is, I understand, but what can you do for me? And to me, I was like, okay, so this really shows that we have literally looked at 50% of the situation. And even though he has all the power and he has all the, the tools to influence whatever the situation is around him, he feels that he's not empowered. He feels that they are asking from him. And he, he was saying, you are asking things of me all the time, but what are you offering me? And I saw him and it was like almost the physical manifestation, even with his brothers who are technically speaking his peers, with his 45 year old next generation members, who wow. everybody had a, had a good education. This man was alone. And he, I could suddenly see the burden he carried with yeah. all the decisions that he had to take for this large conglomerate. And now, of course, you can start arguing it's his own fault. He should have empowered people. He should have. But that was not my point. My point suddenly or it kind of occurred to me. I was like, oh, wow, it is really lonely at the top. And so that's kind of that was the first time that I physically saw kind of what we would call leadership loneliness or afterwards I started realizing it's also something that they call loneliness of command. Right. Which comes a little bit from the military field. Yeah. So there is that phenomenon that if you are the ultimate decision taker, it, it, it is very heavy to carry. And so that for me sparked a huge interest, which I have kind of cultivated over the years on this topic. So what are, so thank you for sharing the story. So what are the elements um, of loneliness? Like what, what does that even mean? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? Obviously there's people that are patriarchs uh, matriarchs on the call, some are next gen, some are in-laws, you know, it, it's, what is it? Because many maybe are experiencing, don't realize it. Many mm -hmm. don't know what you're talking about. Sure. Like, what does it taste like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? You know? Mm -hmm. I think it's a, the problem of loneliness is that it's a, it's a complex construct. Okay. It's very, even psychologists don't really can't really define it in a sentence because the problem of loneliness is it is the absence of something. It is the absence of something that would fulfill a need that we feel, right? Now that could mean 
that could be the case for a minute. We can feel lonely just in a moment of, you know, uh, a situation occurs and, oh gosh, I wish this person was with me or I wish I had someone just to discuss this with. But it can also be a sense of detachment over a protracted period of time. And so the problem is that because it has different dimensions in a temporal sense, it has different emotions attached to it, it's very difficult to define. So the way I sometimes look at it is go back to the function that we're looking at. So we are looking at specifically at loneliness in leadership. So let's start with, with looking yeah. at what is leadership, right? Yeah. So if we deconstruct it, one big mistake that we make, especially in our region, is we mistake leadership with control or we make mistake leadership with ruling. There are, these are two distinct um, processes or behaviors, right? Ruling or controlling is with force. It's with pressure, right? And, and we all know what that looks like. Leading is basically a process of social influence. That's what, that's what the psychologists call it. It's social influence. And what is the output of that social influence? It's you're gathering people's behaviors to push them towards a common goal, right? So, so the, the influence comes from you. And we can even look at it energetically, right? A lot of energy has to flow from a leader in order to modify a group's behavior to behave in a certain way that achieves a certain goal, right? So, so that is, I think, we have to be very careful when we talk about that because today I'm not talking about loneliness as a ruler, which also exists, by the way. I mean, this is also where the military theories come in very, very strongly. But we're talking about people who lead. And leadership is also not defined by your title. It's not defined by how many people should listen to you. It is really defined by your behavior. And I think one of the things we see, especially in family-owned businesses, is that we have visible leaders. We have the leaders who have the business card and the big office and, you know, all the status symbols of leadership and probably hence also have a huge weight of responsibility. But then we also have the hidden leaders. We have the people who lead behind the scenes, who perhaps are not seen in the public eye, but who also carry a lot of responsibility. And for example, we have a program called Women in Family Business. We see a lot of women carry that role, right? Behind the scenes, managing things, and also with a lot of weight of responsibility. So I, maybe, maybe that's, that's a way to kind of understand the type of behavior we're looking at. And now we're adding a question to this is, how does that person in that position deal with moments of stress? How does that person in that position of perceived power and of perceived opportunity deal with a situation where actually they themselves feel that there is no power, there is no opportunity, but also there is nobody to share that with? And I think the interesting part is going to be to understand why do we feel there is an absence what has happened to our environment in our development towards being a leader that we feel there is an absence of 
mirroring or of dialogue or of trust or of confidentiality, right? So, so we can look at it. Okay. So John Maxwell talks about five levels of leadership, right? So you're, you know, level one is what you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? The control, the card, the title, the, the, you know, those elements. And level five is the building of leaders, right? Mm -hmm. Where you are actually spending your time creating more leaders as you, as you go, which is basically making yourself dispensable. But right. in reality, you're making yourself even more indispensable for those who get it. Right. Because building leadership is a skill set that we don't command, right? The, 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 the leadership, you actually, it's given to you because people respect you, honor you and all of that, right? So now, okay, so we've defined the, the difference, right? But now the absence within, right? So if I talk to a psychologist, the absence within is, is like in a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So when we, you know, we as genetic care come in, you know, when you're in a relationship, if you're dependent on another person and you use the word detached versus attached. So many are in a relationship where they're attached to the other and they, they are dependent on the other for quote unquote, you know, what is fleeting called happiness. Mm -hmm. So what is the emptiness within you're referring to, right? Mm -hmm. Is it something that the leader needs to take responsibility for themselves mm -hmm. or is it outward? Mm -hmm. Because if it's inward, you are responsible and not anybody else. Mm -hmm. If it's outward, then it's obviously very risky. So the interesting thing is that we, we, we've known that leadership and that power comes with the downside of a certain type of isolation. This is, this is the nature of human hierarchy, right? I think since the beginning of human hierarchy, I mean, you, you can even say, for example, William Shakespeare, right? In, in, in King Henry IV, he says this thing, um, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. So it already kind of, at that point, we realized that yes, of course, we all, or some of us want to have power. Some of us strive to, to have those positions that look glamorous and, and, and strong. But then we know from a human perspective that in a way to be human is to be lonely, right? It, it's kind of part of how we live. And your question is, I think is very pertinent because when I, when I discussed this with a friend of mine yesterday, she's also from a family business. And she said, but Farida, my brother is never alone. Her brother is the big leader of the family business. She says, he's never alone. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. You are talking about an outward manifestation of being surrounded. Now, of course, if you run a company, if you are in an important position in the government, if you have any other type of leadership position that is outwardly visible, you will most probably be surrounded by a lot of people. Now, so we, there is a difference between being alone, physically alone, and loneliness and the sense of feeling that you do not have that dialogue partner that you might need in that specific moment. So if, if you're asking me the definition of, for me, the leadership loneliness that we're talking about is that in moments of need, and we all have moments of need, when, for example, you're facing a tough decision, a decision that will influence a lot of other people, and you are aware of that, 
this is only obviously for people who are actually aware that their decisions impact others. I mean, we do have some, you know, uh, people with power who don't realize that. But if you are, and that psychologically is a weight on you, then you want to have someone opposite you that you can trust 100%, that can intellectually challenge what you're doing, that, and that you can accept critique from. I think, so you're asking, is it me or is it the outside? I believe the only thing you can really influence is your own behavior. So definitely it starts from the inside. And it starts with the realization that I might be a very powerful person, but I might also need that environment that can sometimes challenge me. Because if I get challenged, I will feel that there is a backup to my reflections, right? There is a, there is a second, secondary layer to my decision-making. And unfortunately, I feel that perhaps there is a cultural element to it. Perhaps there is an institutional or a, or a structural element to it. But I feel that a lot of leadership behavior prevents your environment from asking questions or from, you know, perhaps even critiquing leadership decisions. And, and I think that comes from a perceived idea of what leadership should look like. It should never be second guessed. It should, you know, it should be unfaltering, unwavering. It's almost faultless, right? Because if you question it, it becomes weak. So I believe a lot of it comes with your personal characteristics of how you lead how you realize your impact is on the environment and do you manage to allow people in your environment to be able to reflect you to yourself so so what i'm what i'm hearing so now obviously you know ypo has created the mastermind group right which obviously is not their own personal creation i mean mm -hmm. it's come through, through thought leaders in, in the past. And, sure. and so that is a way of starting to create that ability to have the dialogue, the ability to have the openness. And as you know, vulnerability now at the top has become a sexy topic, mm -hmm. right? But vulnerability at the top is not about, it's, it's yes, being open to, like you said, mm -hmm. being challenged, but at the same time is to create a, a, a support system Yes. Right. So when we're working with leaders, I mean, I can tell you my own story, right? When you, when you look at the physical is one part, but when you look at the mental and emotional and the relational, those are the parts where there's a lot of emptiness, Absolutely. right? And, and in that space, do you have the mentors? Do you have the, the, the coaches or, or whatever, you know, what, whatever you want to call them? Do you have the guidance from a psychology perspective, whether mm -hmm. it's a psychotherapist or so do you have the EQ in addition to the IQ? That's right. Do you have, are you doing the work to make sure that you show up with a cup that's full so that you don't end up, because we know, right? With change, either you spill or you fill the cup. Mm -hmm. If the cup is full, if you spill, it's okay. But if the cup is empty, we have an issue. That's why I asked that question. Is mm -hmm. it the emptiness within? And we're trying to fill it through the outward image through the outward power, or is it from within? And you're saying it's a combination, yes. right? My so I did not have that support structure and mm -hmm. ended up sick trying to prove my worth 
through the outer definition of society's definition of success. Mm -hmm. So is that driving it too? Is it the question of their life driving it, which is an outward proof of am I good enough? What are you seeing as the common denominator? Well, I mean, I see this and, and maybe it's, it will be interesting to look at family firms a bit more specifically because I yeah. think um, leadership loneliness in family firms looks a little differently from, you know, the, the, the behavior that we see in, in perhaps in corporates or in other spaces. Yeah. Um, just to kind of backtrack a little bit yeah. from, from the outside inwards. So if I am being led by a person, what is my expectation to that person, right? My expectation is twofold. Number one, they take the responsibility. I might contribute, yes. but it's not my responsibility. So it's I completely- The buck stops there, yeah. Absolutely. I deflect any type of responsibility to that person. The other, the other point that I expect is they can fix everything, right? That's why they're their leader. They are being paid for it. They have the, the big office. So my expectation is that they can fix everything. I now, I'm imagine... Your, I'm not your leader. Not if that's <laughs> I have high expectations of you. <laughs> um, but, but imagine the power, even the energetic power of, let's say, 500, 1,000, 2,000 employees, family members, focusing that energy on one person, Right? That is, that is the weight of responsibility. And that is just the social expectation. Now you have the tactical, strategic element to it. You have the intellectual element to it. With what is happening in today's world in the fourth industrial revolution, I see a lot of leadership loneliness in trying to face these new technologies. Because you have, you have leaders who have led successful businesses for 30, 40 years, who've done amazing things, but in suddenly, like literally within five years, the industry they knew so well has disappeared, has, is completely disrupted. Yeah. So now what do you do, right? Do you sit down and write a master's thesis on, on innovation in your, in your industry in order to be able to be an expert? How do you deal with that, right? So I think this is a very important aspect to say is that it has like an energetic element. It has a, a social element, but then it has all these tactical intellectual um, expectations that we have of leaders. Now talking about family businesses or family offices, we, we might expect that leaders in family firms are less lonely, right? Because if you look at corporates, um, of course, they don't, they, they are not, they don't have family members who walk around, right? Or, or their cousin who walks in the corridor and kind of gives them a hug and says, how, how is it going? You don't have that. So you might think that, oh, okay, um, that must mean they, they are much more comfortable because they are surrounded by family, right? My theory would be actually the contrary. Because in addition to these dimensions that I mentioned before, the social expectation, the intellectual, the strategic. Now you also have the family's expectations and you have not just their expectations, you have the emotional responsibility for their well-being. So that adds so much focus to what you're trying to achieve. And I've spoken to so many over the years, so many family business members, and it always somehow the most 
intelligent, well-read, well-educated, extremely successful people at some point in the conversation will come up with something like, yeah, but my aunt is really not happy with me. You know, you don't have that in a corporate setting. You don't care what your aunt thinks, you know, if you did a good job or not. But in a family business, even if that aunt is not a shareholder even, or she is not involved in the business, her take on your skills or her take on your success is important. So we have to be very careful, um, especially when we educate next generation members, in my opinion. If we want next generation members to be strong leaders in their own right, be it at the very top, be it in different spaces, be it outside of the family business, there has to be a dialogue about what it means to deal with the psychological pressure of leading a family business or of being a leader, one of the leaders perhaps, in a family business. So, but do you see that patriarchs and matriarchs are leading by example, or you see that that's, they're actually showing the hollowness and the, the, the gap that exists in that space? I think there are exceptional leaders. I think there are leaders um, that I always learn from, and I've known them for over a decade. A decade. I, every time I sit with them, um, I learn from them. Typically, I would say from a behavioral perspective, for, as an outsider, I learn most from the people who, are, who have kind of a natural humility um, because they are also the most open to sharing, you know, their learning and sharing their thoughts. So I would imagine that a leader that has an aspect of humility in their character is probably a, a good guiding light for a next generation because it makes them probably more accessible. So the learning is more direct um, and it, it kind of motivates because usually these types of leaders um, have a surrounding that is, is very supportive. So they, even, they might still feel the loneliness because I, I don't think you can fully eradicate that. But I think, I think they have people around them who, who go beyond the just, oh, this is a job, I have a function, I have to fulfill. They'll be supportive because the leader themselves give them, some, give them something back. Um, but of course, that is from me, from the outside, I see the leader as the leader in their environment. It's very different when you talk to your family members. And I think we all know that, right? We have a family persona, all of us, we have a family persona and we have a professional persona. And sometimes those two personas are not completely the same. They, I mean, they never are the same because they're a different context, but I think it is difficult for family members to learn these traits from your elders because you know so much about each other and you are so connected and they see you based on your history and you see them based on their history. So are there examples? Absolutely, there are examples. I think there are amazing leaders in the family business field. Is it easy to transmit leadership behavior to your next generation? Absolutely not, for sure. So even leading by example, you feel is not enough no. for somebody to be able. So the video, because we always say 95% is video, 5% in audio. Mm -hmm. So is it, is it they require training? You need to create an infrastructure. What are the solutions? What are the solutions to help the next gen not mm -hmm. be as lonely, quote unquote? Look, there will be a certain element. Otherwise, you will not be able to take the decisions 
that a lot of people have to take against mm -hmm. the wind, right? Mm -hmm. Today, we all know COVID is happening. There's decisions that CEOs and, and leaders are taking that they would have never dreamt of taking. Yes, right? absolutely. And, and probably pray the next, next generation never has to, right? But mm -hmm. it is what it is. So how can they prepare the next gen for that role? Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand we're not just talking about leadership loneliness because it's a fancy topic uh, or because, you know, it's fun to talk about. I don't think that's the case. I think we are talking about it because leadership loneliness has real consequences. So before I answer your question, let's look at what are the consequences of leadership loneliness, okay. right? So it is proven in, in psychology that any type of loneliness, be it in leadership positions or just yeah. in your social life, actually can cause physical harm. Yeah. It causes heightened stress. It yeah. causes a sense of alienation. It causes changes in your social behavior, right? And very much it causes emotional turmoil. So all of those elements, if you think about it, if I make that list, would you like your leader to experience those in moments of distress? No, right? You want them to be focused and stable and far-sighted and detail-oriented and, you know, kind of those are the things you want them to be. So leadership loneliness and loneliness as, a, as, a, as an emotion, as a, as a state of being has real consequences. And in leaders, what it does is these, the stress, the alienation, um, the emotional distress create different types of behaviors that are negative. One, for example, is avoidance. So you'll see that leaders, in order to fill we're coming to your void slowly, in order to fill that void and that anxiety that they're feeling, they are starting to avoid certain things, certain topics, certain people. And that is, that is very dangerous because as a leader, you should be able to, to face those things. It's almost inhuman to expect it, by the way, I think. We cannot in, in good faith expect any individual to face everything by themselves. That's why we're talking about this topic, right? But sometimes these humans have that expectation of themselves. And when they feel that they're not being able to fulfill that, they actually start avoiding. And I sometimes, to be very honest, see that when it comes to the next generation development. Because for leaders, it's an emotional topic, because it comes with a lot of emotional baggage to deal with these young people or the younger generation, there is a bit of avoidance, right? We'll send them to a class, we'll send them to a course, we'll, you know, we'll invest in them. We'll send them to Tarawat. But we'll send them to Tarawat, which is most welcome to do. <laughs> but I cannot replace that natural, organic transmission exactly. of leadership understanding right? That fits in your context. Everything you learn from the outside is fantastic because it's, you know, it's, it's proven theoretically. It has a global appeal. It's best practice. That's fantastic. But then your family business is your family business. It has its own little DNA that only the family members understand. So in order to lead that engine, you need to get it from the inside as much as from the outside. So yeah. avoidance is one thing. And then you have the other behavior that is deflection. So I'm not just avoiding, I'm actually countering, right? <laughs> Something comes to me, I'll just throw it right back. 
And that is also a very well-observed behavior that we see in leaders, uh, in corporate leaders around our region. Reflection, deflection, right? I'm not even engaging. It, you know, skids right off uh, my, my, uh, my forefront. So what that means is I am not listening to certain important stimuli or pieces of information. And my thought is that the ultimate outcome of that is almost in the most severe cases, a bit of a distortion of reality, right? Because what it means is I'm trying to avoid to feel these emotions. I'm trying to avoid the stress and the anxiety, which means I either deflect or I don't engage at all, right? which means I don't get pieces of information that I should be listening to because they are important for me to take the right decisions. And that creates an image of reality that might not be the one that I need to have as a leader right now. And that sometimes gets amplified by if you are surrounded by people who want to please you because most leaders have people around them who <laughs> just want to please them, right? They just want to make sure that you're happy. And so that yes to everything adds to that distortion. So just to come back to why I'm telling all this story is because why are we talking about leadership loneliness is because it can have real consequences on the quality of your leadership. Right? So why don't we take a moment? We have people in the room that are advisors, some leaders, some matriarchs, patriarchs. Um, you can just send it to the panel how many recognize or recognize themselves or recognize a family member? Obviously, again, that's easy. We're deflecting it to somebody else. <laughs> what Freida just shared, I know I do. I'm, I can take full responsibility of being a lot more like that pre-cancer. And I can say continuing to be every now and then like that. I mean, you know, it's, it's when, when it gets to that space, um, it happens in different areas, right? But from our perspective, while everybody kind of comments or chooses not to. Come on, everyone. We'd love to have your sharing. It'll be, you can send it to the panel so that nobody else gets to see it if you feel it's too private. But it's to really look at, you know, obviously from the mental and emotional side that you spoke to, we work with a lot of the matriarchs and patriarchs mm -hmm. on presence and engagement. Mm -hmm. And that's the mental and emotional side, right? Mm -hmm. And then on the calmness and centeredness, which mm -hmm. is the relational side. And that is that is the foundation to be able to help not end up in the space that you're referring to, mm -hmm. which is, you know, avoidance and, and denial, right? Mm -hmm. and, and a distorted reality is what you're, you're coming back to. Perhaps an interesting, just little, you know, tidbit here is um, there is very little research actually about leadership loneliness um, because I think it is such a complex topic and I think it just recently has become a topic that people really start talking about. But there is a 2012 um, CEO survey um, for the CEO snapshot, snapshot survey. And it's one of the only surveys that I found that actually had a question about loneliness. And so more than half of the surveyed CEOs, and these are some of the leading CEOs in the US, um, reported feeling lonely. So more than half. And more than 60% of those believe that that loneliness impacts their performance. Of course. Right? Now, 
The number goes even higher when you talk about first-time CEOs. When they ask okay. them, when I ask the first-time CEOs how many of them felt lonely, the answer was 70%. Okay. Right? So I think as a family business, we need to be very aware of those statistics, right? It, not, number one, it means we're all feeling the same. So the good news is we're all humans and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy topic, but we're all feeling it. So I guess in a way we're, we're not that lonely after all. Um, so that's good. But this, the second part is first-time CEOs feel the most lonely, which means they feel the most vulnerable, which means their decision-making is going to be the most effective, right? Now, I think what that shows is that you have to be very conscious of that in the succession planning process, right? If you want to avoid that someone gets catapulted to a position of power without preparation or without having gone through perhaps successive steps of increased responsibility, right? Where you get used to that idea of, hang on a second, it actually is all on my shoulders and there is nobody I can blame but myself if this goes wrong. That is something, it's like a muscle, right? You can train it, you can become more resilient, you can become, I've noticed it myself in my, in my own career. If I look back in the beginning, I mean, I would crumble under a lot of things that today I'm like, you know what, you know, so be it, let's move on. So it is something- And you, you have two do. sisters that are good sparring partners, right? To be honest, I mean, I was gonna make a joke about it, but I, I think that my privilege um, is that my sisters and I realized um, at some point that our relationship had to be our relationship as peers. Because, you know, as, when you grow up as children, and, and we have a very interesting article in Tharawat magazine about this, your, your relationship as siblings is defined by your relationship to your parents, right? As you grow older, if you do not take care of that relationship and move it into adulthood, yes. it always stays in that triangular situation with your parents being at the center. Now, that might be nice to a certain extent, but what it does is that at some point, there might be a situation where those parents are not there. So what happens to your relationship then? If you have not invested consciously in that relationship with your siblings or even, I mean, cousins is more difficult, but I think in the sibling generation, you can do it very consciously, is to very early on start realizing that, hang on, we need to build our independent approach. And I've been blessed that my sisters, my two sisters and I kind of came to that conclusion together a couple of years ago. And that since then, we've not always been successful because it is work like any other relationship, right? But I have to say, if I look at, for example, what we've been through right now with the COVID situation and the emotional pressure that everybody is feeling, the fact that I have those two people two adults that know everything about me, but that I also respect because of the relationship we have been able to build, that definitely gives you an incredible arsenal. It gives you tools. It gives you the knowledge that you can fall back on, right? Even with them, I sometimes feel lonely. So there is, I think, a reality, and it's, it's what this one researcher said, you know, 
to be human is to be lonely. I think we shouldn't also have the illusion that we can eradicate loneliness from our lives. That's not the goal here. I think the goal is to acknowledge it, to understand what it does to us, how it impacts our work, and let's reduce it where we can. So let's work towards a lifestyle where we can say, you know what, I actually feel less detached. I actually feel more surrounded by people I can trust. And, but I can tell you again, it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work because to build trust, you need to give trust. To give trust is to be vulnerable. So do we want that? Can we be that? And I, I, I will never discard the, the, the difficulties that some of the families that I work with experience in their environment, right? There are certain contexts because of social political situations, because of, of, of economic situations, where giving trust and receiving trust is almost impossible just because the context is so complex, right? So I will never judge anyone who tells me, and I've had people telling me, Farida, this is all very nice. This is cute what you're saying, but I can't do that, right? And I, I'm gonna be very honest with you. Like there are people who, are, who would listen to me now and go like, Farida, come on, you know, let's, let's come down to reality. Like, this is really pretty. But I do think that even those people, when you sit down with them and you discuss things for a protected amount of time and they start giving you that trust, they will show you that of course they have doubts and of course they have worries and of course they are concerned and of course they wonder, can I share that with someone, right? Will someone understand or will they also crumble under the knowledge? I had, just as a final point here, I had once um, a family business member tell me a, a big problem they had. <clears throat> and I was like, why don't you talk to this person about it? Also a family member. And she said, Farida, if I tell her, she is going to suffer more than me. So I am keeping it for myself because I do not want to affect others. Right? So there is perhaps a selflessness in that loneliness. Right. So I don't just want to see it as a negative or as a as a lack of something. It might be that the leaders who feel the most lonely are also the most selfless because they know that they might be able to take certain pressures, but they do not want their family members or their environment to have to deal with the same. So it can be a weakness, but it can also be a sign of incredible strength. What we're trying to do here is dissect it a little bit and empower people to reflect what does this mean for my life? Where do I feel lonely? And how do I feel I could improve the things that I want to improve? I think I, I, I want to reassert what you just shared about you and your sisters, right? In terms of reframing, right? The relationship from the, par from the perspective of the parents to adulthood, which is reframing to the perspective of the three individuals, the three siblings, two siblings, four siblings, whatever that might be. And that is something that is very seldom done. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as a result, you have the impact of, you know, um, a lot of parents making decisions that are, mm -hmm. that are unfortunately biased siblings behaving in ways that are not aligned with, you said, the common goal. 
of the family of the family office. But I think that graduation from moving from the triangle where the parents are on top mm-hmm. to creating a flat, you know, um, mm-hmm. relationship, right? We, I was talking the other day and I say, where are you living? Are you living between tolerance and acceptance of your family members or between acceptance and embracing your family members, mm-hmm. right? And, and if we don't graduate, like you said, we will most probably be between tolerance and acceptance mm-hmm. and not between acceptance and embrace. And I think with you and your sisters, you're on the right side. I don't mean right, wrong, but I mean on mm-hmm. the other side, mm-hmm. which is able to bring out that level of trust, that empowerment, right? You're empowering each other. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're no longer a crutch. When you stay on, the, on, mm-hmm. on that triangle, you're still operating as a crutch and the crutch is your parents. That's right. When you move to that adulthood relationship that you mentioned of siblings, you then move towards empowerment and therefore everything is possible. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what, what you're saying? Reframed and in another Absolutely. way. I just wanted to reassert it because I think that's really you know, an incredible, profound statement. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's a very good way of putting it. I feel um, it's, it's a privilege that by chance, and I have to say, I do believe there's a lot of luck in this, <laughs> that the three of us, even though we're very different people, very, very different people, and you know all of us, um, <laughs> We, we have a underlying characteristic, but also I think our parents have given us um, successfully transmitted values that kind of make us want to achieve this together. The difficulty, of course, that I see in, in family firms in creating that environment is when motivations are too far apart, right? Mm-hmm. When you have people who have a motivation that perhaps is holistic, you know, in the interest of the collective, who would be willing to take um, a step back if it was in the interest of the collective, yeah. versus people who have more individualistic needs or wishes or, or goals. And the more those separate, the harder this process would become. So the way I see it is that it has to start really early on. And I remember my mother, um, and it'll, it'll connect to loneliness in a bit, in a moment. <clears throat> I remember my, my mother literally every day after school, somehow managing the three of us to understand what happened to the other on this day. So we would jointly talk about, oh, you know, why, why is this, you know, why is she sad? What do you think? You know, how can we help her? You know, reflect about how your sibling is doing. And that creates that sense of solidarity and that sense of loyalty that now in this process that we have to go through. And I'm telling you, even with this sense, it's it's work. <laughs> it is work. We have to do it consciously. You, but, you are a piece of work. So I can imagine what your sisters go through. Just kidding. Cut that out of the recording. <laughs> that is not public knowledge. <laughs> I think your sisters would agree. But I... <laughs> But we are I not commenting. They're silent would, so far. You, you, you would, you would be. They would say the same. Uh, you would say the same about them. So it's okay. Uh, Never. It's, I'm the eldest. I'm the wise playing, one. Yeah, it's, it's a level playing field. <laughs> but yeah. So you know, linking that, I think to have people that have loyalty towards you that stems from something else than what you pay them 
or the status you're giving them. Now, that is the invaluable treasure you can have around you. And I think those are the things that are going to reduce your sense of loneliness. And if you, you know, I, I like how you're always focused on, you know, what can we do? You know, how can we make things better? And I think that working on your own personal space and your family dynamics is definitely a big thing. Sometimes that is very heavy though, right? And it, it's almost like another enterprise. It's almost like <laughs> it takes a lot of effort and energy and focus and appointment yes. and, you know, it's a job. It's a job. The other thing that I think you can do in your workspace is a bit easier. Like there are a couple of things I feel that you can do in your workspace that are going to make it much easier for you to feel a bit less kind of lonely. And you've mentioned a few. One, I think, is peer groups. And I have to say in Therawat, the beauty of being a non-for-profit is that we are non-commercial, which means that people can really come to meet each other, right? It's, it's, a, it's a meeting place. And the effect, and I'm, I'm telling you, the, the one feedback I get from everybody that I speak to that has been to a Tharawat um, session or event, it, they don't even, like the beautiful speakers that I invite, they're fantastic and you know everybody appreciates them or I, I give a presentation, I'm very proud of my presentation and I think the feedback will be, oh Farida, this presentation really changed my life. Not at all. It was the break, the conversation they had during the break with someone that is their peer and that understands what they're going through and gave them one sentence of advice because it was not biased, it was disinterested, it was completely genuine that really helped them. So I think peers are extremely important. So to find groups of peers, these can be, you know, five people, two people, one, it can be one person, it doesn't matter. But to have that reflection and that mirroring is very important. Also, please, I think we shouldn't expect that there is one type of loneliness, hence there is one solution. I don't think that's the case, right? So we can, we can just improve the general sense of belonging, I think. That's what we can do. And then different situations might require different types of support systems. Um, and the second one, I think, is, is definitely also what you, what you are offering, um, which is more kind of in the direction of support and coaching. So to say, you know what, I'm going through a difficult time. It's okay to go through a difficult time, even if you're responsible for a lot of things. It's fine to allow that to happen. And it's fine to allow that to, to you know, come to your consciousness. You know, sometimes we suppress that. We don't want to admit that we're suffering or that we're not doing well. But I think then to find a person who can just help you, this can be a process of six months or maybe a year, to help you just work through that process that you're in, I think is, is absolutely essential. And if you look in the US, where the culture is a bit more open towards talking about these things, the benefits that CEOs see in having that support system is, is really impressive. So I think mentoring, coaching, something like that. And the other point um, is also what you mentioned very early on is nurture in order to be nurtured. So what I mean by that is I've seen people that I put into a mentor position. I didn't do that for them, by the way. I, I literally felt like, okay, this young person needs a mentor. This sounds like a you know perfect fit. I'll put them together. And I get a feedback from the mentee. Oh, yeah, this was great. This really helped me. But then the feedback from the mentor is even more interesting because what they say is 
this really energized me. It made me feel like I matter in a different space. I matter in a different way. And you would imagine a person who has this, you know, huge title and, you know, directorships all over the world. And I don't know what, suddenly telling me, you know what, mentoring a 25 year old actually made me feel very good and, and, you know, strengthened me. So I think giving is also a very nice way of feeling a bit less lonely in certain situations. No, I mean, obviously, right. The, the thing, a lot of people underestimate the willingness of some of the, the, the top, like you said, founders, CEOs, whatever they are, um, to give back and to mentor and to share, right? And, and to share openly the good, the bad, and the ugly, Absolutely. right? If they're given the opportunity, they will because they, they don't want you to make the same mistakes. Absolutely. And I think before, <laughs> before we go, I, I think, you know, one is loneliness at the top, as you said, as a CEO, but what about the entrepreneur, Absolutely. right? Imagine the entrepreneur who is not only the first time CEO, but he's actually built the business. Absolutely. Now, how does that feel? I mean, I can tell you from my own experience, it's really, really not what I wouldn't want other people to go through, right? So in that, but again, I, you know, we talk about what is the question driving my life, mm -hmm. right? Is, am I being fulfilled within or externally, mm -hmm. right? So it's really looking at how can I fill myself up within so that I'm not reliant on the external to fill myself up. Right? And I think that teaching is not shared. Right? We're not taught that when we're young or when we go to, to business school. And we talked about the West versus the East. Yes, on the West side, you have the openness, the willingness. I agree with you. But I mean, I know we're from the East and maybe we're biased, but the value system that comes from the East in many instances is very powerful, yeah. right? Of the collective and not of me, myself, and I. So it's both sides have incredible strengths, but also incredible weaknesses, right? To be able, and, and I think it's the combination, right? So when you say it's good to be able to go externally, et cetera, but we need to bring back with the perspective of the, of the DNA of the family business themselves mm -hmm. to find a solution that works, Absolutely. right? And that has to be by taking responsibility from within, as you said, right? So, so now in terms of you've given solutions, you've given comments, what did we not touch on that, that you would like to share or, or maybe go deeper on in, in our last five minutes together? Well, I think, to be honest, I feel the, the, the point that you're, you've touched upon around culture. Um, I feel culture is something... I mean, we're talking about the most intangible things ever, so it makes it very difficult, right, to put your finger on, on exactly what it is. And I, I thought a lot about that because I grew up in a more individualistic culture. I grew up in Europe, and then now I live in a collective culture. And um, I've thought a lot about loneliness, uh, and our assumption is, you know, with, with what we see in the West, uh, you know, our general assumption is people are more lonely because of the individualistic culture of, of yeah. you know, the structure of society is, is, yeah. has changed a lot. And, you know, people, people are much more physically alone. Um, yes. And, you know, I, I'm sure everybody remembers at school, you know, you would make fun of the loner, right? Oh, you know, it, it, it also has a stigma, by the way. One point that I wanted to say is, yeah. why do we want to, why do we, why do we not want to be alone or lonely um, because in a way it also comes with a stigma because being the loner 
means you have failed in your social interactions. And that comes from a, a very clear childhood experience, which many of us have experienced, you know, that you are the kid during the break that doesn't have any friends and you're being singled out for being that. So the loneliness aspect always comes with a negative connotation, right? So I think that is something that we need to keep in mind why we try to avoid it. But are we really less lonely in a collective society? I would, I would very much doubt that, to be very honest. Even though, and I agree with you, the underlying value system of a collective is beautiful, right? It is, you know, all for one, one for all. Um, we, we believe in the strength of the unit. Uh, we work towards that unity. But I think we all know that it comes with a lot of caveats, right? It and comes the execution with a lot is not always very good. Slightly flawed, <laughs> right? I would say. Um, but again, I think the process that I've gone through with my sisters shows that it takes a lot of work and vision. I think the collective culture is a beautiful setting, but it does take vision and purpose. If it is just being lived for the sake of living it, I think it actually is more conducive to loneliness than the individualistic culture. So you talk about, I would say more isolation. I think the word isolation is probably, right? Sure. That you're saying that if we don't have a aligned mission, purpose or vision, we start to isolate each other and we start yeah. to operate in silos. But from an image perspective, we are still today together as a collective, right? From an ownership, from, a, from an external perspective. But internally, we start to operate in silos and as a result are, quote unquote, lonely, as you say, but in reality, isolated. Yeah. Is that, that, is, is that exactly where you're coming? Yeah. I right, found so someone who understands what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> There's somebody who's just said, being physically alone and being lonely are not the same, although they may overlap. You can feel more lonely in a crowd than you are physically alone. Exactly. 100%. So I think that's what she means, that we could have family and be surrounded as we are in the Asian culture mm -hmm. and yet not truly communicate. Absolutely. Right. I think it's, it's the connection that we're talking about, right? I mean, and while in, maybe in the other parts of the world, you may not have that huge gathering, et cetera, but at the end of the day, there is, there could be possibly more connection and more um, space from that. So we have a couple of minutes left. Um, any last remarks? Few reinforcements, one-liners. Well, oh uh, gosh, the one-liners. Well, I wish I had one-liners. Uh, I'm very bad <laughs> with one-liners. I always kind of tend to tend to, you know, talk more than one-liners. But no, I think we we just need to be kind to ourselves. Um, which I believe that when you've gone through a process of, you know, hard work to get to the top of, of an organization uh, or you founded an organization, sometimes we just forget the simple fact of, you know, being kind to ourselves and being accepting that we might not feel all the strength that we need every single day of our you know, existence. And, and that is okay. And that makes us human. Uh, and there are tools and there are ways to, to change that. Um, and, you know, I think the, the beauty of being human is that we, that we are not perfect uh, and that makes us special and that makes us unpredictable, but also great. So um, it's not a one-liner, but I really believe that. <laughs> <laughs> so concept of self-care and self-love. But I think taking that back to the comment you made about 
somebody who would be leading you and that you would deflect all the responsibility to them, which I completely understand, but also that they should have all the answers, right? So maybe from the perspective of our leaders that we should also approach it from a concept of self-care and self-love towards them, Absolutely. not only to ourselves, right? So as leaders, I agree yeah. with you, but I think as those who are part of, you know, you know, the, the, the person that, that we're being led by, we should also approach it from that perspective. And from there, from that softness, from that level of empathy, not sympathy, I think it will make their, you know, willing to be open a lot easier. I and think that's the biggest gift you can give someone. Truly, that is the biggest gift, you know, to come, to come to them with empathy and acceptance and support. What else can you require from another human being? So we've just graduated from tolerance to acceptance, and now we've moved towards embrace. So... And Ibala. going back to the webinar series, Embracing Change. So thank you very much, Farida. Yeah, Truly an honor you, and privilege. I know you're in Switzerland now uh, yes. visiting your mm -hmm. parents and your sister. And your, so all three of you are together. So that's, um, that's really, really beautiful. I'm glad you're enjoying your time. Thank and you very uh, much. thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, everyone, for your time. Next week, we have Ahmad Hussein, who's going to share with us what he learned from Wall Street. He spent quite some time there. Now he spends his time working with very large family offices all over Europe. And he wants to talk about how he's slowly but surely living to live in flow. So step by step. Yeah, so that will be next Wednesday, same time. He's based in London. So taking what you're saying, um, you know, he's not, he's not a family business guy, but uh, he deals with a lot of family businesses and family offices like yourself. And uh, I'm sure he'll be sharing a lot of inter interesting stories with us. So thank you, Farida. Thank you, everyone. Thank you As always, the hour passes by really quickly. The information, the articles that you mentioned and the research on 2012, if um, you're happy, we would love to share that with the recording to everyone who attended and those who were not able to attend. And then obviously, we'll be put up on our website so they can watch it at their own leisure. All right. Thank you, Farida. Thank you very much. God bless. Thank and uh, thank you again. All the best. All right. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Take care. Bye.